After a short break, Diving Deeper is back. Thank you for tuning in for this special dual interview as part of our Corals Week. I'm your host, Kate Nielsen. Today we will explore ocean acidification and coral bleaching. A special welcome today to Jennifer Koss, the Acting Director for NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program, and Mark Aiken, the Coordinator for NOAA's Coral Reef Watch. Hi Jennifer and Mark, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Jennifer, I asked your colleague John Christensen this question last year on Diving Deeper when we interviewed him. So it's a, it's a good opportunity to see where we stand today. What can you tell us about the health of our coral reefs now in 2014? Well, I wish I could say that overall things were improving, but unfortunately that's just not the case. For instance, this summer we recently observed um, a whole bunch of bleaching events in the Pacific and the Caribbean and that were unexpected. We had bleaching events in both the main eight islands as well as northwestern Hawaiian Islands in Guam, Florida, a few places reported internationally as well. And in the Florida Keys, it's the worst bleaching incident we've seen since 1998. And then in generally, the local stressors that corals experience are still there and um, the global stressors continue to increase. Can you expand what you mean when you say these stressors that our corals face today? Another word for stressors would be threats. The coral program tends to define the threats as local and global. And the local threats are kind of impacts from land-based sources of pollution as well as impacts from fishing. And the fishing in general, globally speaking, a lot of our, our fisheries are either exploited to the max, if not over-exploited. It's not quite the case in the United States, but if you're looking worldwide, that's certainly the, the case. And so you've got everything from gear impacts interacting with the corals, as well as the effects of removing fish off of the reef, and that tends to get things off kilter. So if you're removing all of the herbivores, which keep the algae levels down on the reef, you're, you're causing big shifts in the way that these coral ecosystems function. And then gear impacts can be everything from literally colliding with the coral reef to people who dynamite fish or cyanide fish, and it's kind of more adding insult to injury there. And then uh, our, our other big local impact would be land-based sources of pollution, and that can be anything from sediment coming off of the land to nutrients and toxics also coming off the land, and then the, the plastics that seem to be increasing and becoming more globally distributed. And then global impacts, which Mark will talk far more about, would be all the impacts from climate change. So warming sea water temperatures, sea level rise, ocean acidification. Okay. So un unfortunately, it is quite the host of threats that our corals are seeing. I think for today's episode, I'd like to look a little bit more at this effect of warming waters on our corals, and I'll, I'll open that up to both of you to, to chime in. So I'll, I'll kick it off and then hand it over to Mark. In general, when corals experience a thermal stress, the algae that exists within the coral tissues, their symbiotic zooxanthellidae, the corals will expel them. So the color that you see in a coral is actually due to the, the algae that's in the tissue. So when the algae is expelled, the corals themselves are translucent, so you get this, this bleached effect. Mm -hmm. So that's the overall net impact of, of too quickly and too much warm water in a coral ecosystem. Okay. Yeah, when the water warms up, what happens is that it's actually 
good for the algae in, in one way in that it makes all of their photosynthetic apparatus run really great. But the problem is they run too fast. And as they run too fast, they're not able to repair themselves. And the lack of repair causes the algae to start releasing compounds that are toxic to the corals. The coral sees this as, who, you know, we got to get rid of you because, you know, if we don't, we're both going. And they will actually eject the algae out from their tissues. They, they move them into the guts, spit them out. It's a literal gut-wrenching experience when they do this. They're breaking off pieces of tissue to get rid of this, to slough it off. What happens is the coral is actually clear. The tissue of the coral is actually clear. And that maximizes the light that can get through and get to the zooxanthellae, these symbiotic algae. Well, when the corals kick all of these algae out, it allows the light to get through to the white skeleton underneath. And you're looking at it, you're seeing white skeleton. It looks like it's been bleached. Mm -hmm. But you've actually got live tissue over the top. It's just very difficult to see unless you look really close. Now, if the event is mild enough and doesn't last too long, the corals are able to recover their zooxanthellae, go back to normal. Although they have been stressed, they have been damaged, it does make them more susceptible to other types of disease, just like you or I mm -hmm. are more susceptible to the common cold if our bodies are stressed, if we're not getting enough sleep, not enough rest, a lot of stress at work, whatever. Now, if the event is really severe, then the, the problem is when these algae are gone, the corals have lost most of their food source. So they're actually starving at this point. So the longer this lasts, the, the less other food that's available to them, uh, the, the quicker the corals are going to die. Now, that's what happens at an individual level, but if you think about the entire reef, what can happen is a reef that's bleached really badly You've got all these corals spitting out their tissues and algae into the water. All of that is degrading. You get a lot of bacterial action in, in really shallow areas. The water starts to smell because you're, you're getting all of this rotting uh, tissue on the surface. You get this slick forming. The other thing, though, is it's not just the corals that are affected. Everything living on that reef is affected. You know, sometimes you talk about, you know, wishing you could unsee something. I, when I was diving on reefs in Thailand during the major bleaching event in 2010, that is something that I would just like to be able to race, and I can't. The corals were white. The fish were swimming around stunned. They didn't know where to go. The anemones were bleached white. Anemones also have zooxanthellae, so they were bleaching as well. The clownfish weren't going into their anemones. They were swimming around, jumping into corals when they felt threatened rather than going into their anemones. The giant clams were bleached. They also have microscopic algae in their tissues. And everything just looked like it, it, it was in shock. The entire reef was in shock. So when a coral reef bleaches, it's a lot more than just what happens to the individual corals. It's affecting the entire ecosystem present on that reef. We've been talking about these rising temperatures kind of being maybe one of those things that's kicking off the, this bleaching event. So do bleaching events only happen then in warmer waters? No. 
Corals will bleach when temperatures get too high. That's, yeah. the, that's also the only time that we see these mass bleaching events that cover huge okay. areas, lots of, uh, of reefs in a region, all at the same time bleaching because you've got this big warm water mass. You can get localized bleaching when water temperatures get too cold too fast. A little bit different reaction, some ejection of algae. A lot of time what happens in that case, like what happened in the Florida Keys in 2011, was just really cold conditions causing a lot of the coral to just die within a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Much faster uh, than what you tend to see from bleaching. So can a, can a coral recover from a bleaching event or does it tend to be fatal? It, it depends. Okay. Corals can recover and reefs can recover. And you know, we can look at both of these. An individual coral, if the event is, is brief, if the event is not very severe, um, the bleaching is something that the coral can recover from by growing back its algae. There's still a small number left in the tissues. They don't get rid of all of them. So they'll get their color back. On the reef scale, if you do have a major event and a lot of bleaching and a lot of death occurs, coral reefs can bounce back. But this gets back into some of what Jen was talking about in terms of the local stressors. A reef that is highly stressed from overfishing, from damaging fishing, especially from land-based sources of pollution, have a harder time recovering. There was a great study that came out a couple of years ago from a reef a thousand kilometers offshore from Australia. It's very well protected because nobody goes there. There are no local threats, but it's also isolated, so they can't get new corals coming in from elsewhere. So they are dependent on what happens in their reef. Mm -hmm. But what happened there, you had a lot of bleaching and mortality that occurred in the 1998 uh, El Nino event. After the coral died, the algae started to grow, but the population of parrotfish and surgeonfish shot up. They kept all of the algae mowed down. That allowed the corals to self-recruit so the new larval corals could have a nice place to land, could grow, could repopulate. As they repopulated, the fish, the population of those herbivores actually started to decline a bit. The algae was gone. The reef came back. If we don't stress corals in other ways, they can bounce back from these events. But if we're stressing the reefs, it's really hard to recover. Okay, thank you. So how does, you know, if we can project and look out just a little bit, how does 2015 look in regards to coral bleaching? So 1998 was the biggest bleaching globally that we've ever had. Uh, we lost 15 to 20% of the world's coral reefs in that year. The combination of the El Nino and the back-to-back the -back El Nino and La Nina meant that a lot of areas warmed up during the El Nino, bleaching was severe all across the world. Some areas don't warm during an El Nino, but do during a La Nina, and boom, they got hit the next year. Mm. 2010, we had a mild El Nino, but yet we had the very same pattern of global bleaching going on. Not as severe, but a lot of places were hit very badly. Mm. We're concerned about this El Nino that because of the warming we're already seeing, because the oceans are already so warm before this El Nino started, that the combination of climate change with the even a small El Nino is likely to cause a lot of bleaching in 2015. 
we've been worried about 2015 and have been concerned about what this El Nino was going to do for the last six months. What we didn't know was how bad 2014 was going to be even before we got that El Nino fully formed. So even if we have a mild to moderate El Nino coming in, and that we'll know in the next few months, we'll see just how bad it's, it's potentially going to be in 2015. And I'm really worried about having a lot of bleaching going on next year. Okay, so we, we've covered a lot on bleaching so far, and I was hoping you guys could also help me understand what the connection is here with ocean acidification. I can start a little bit. Ocean acidification is literally the ocean becoming more acidic. Mm -hmm. So as more CO2 is absorbed into the water column, it becomes less basic, more acidic, which puts, again, another level of stress okay. on corals. So kind of probably initially slows down growth and the potential for the corals to, to create more of the calcareous, the hard white structure that Mark was talking about. When you get to really extreme levels, it's not just slowing growth, it's actually, in essence, eroding the reef structure. Coral reefs are a, a delicate balance between processes that build them up and processes that break them down. And that's part of the natural process of reefs. You've got a lot of things that will break down the reef uh, by erosion, the erosion by biological organisms is a major feature of every coral reef, and that makes a lot of the sand that surrounds the reefs and that we have on beaches. So this is a very important process. But the problem, again, is one of balance. As the ocean becomes more acidic, there are less carbonate ions in the water. Now, okay, so what are carbonate ions? Calcium carbonate, limestone, the material that coral reefs are made of. If you don't have the carbonate, you don't have the ability of the corals to make their skeletons as quickly or as readily as they usually do. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it makes it easier for some of these eroding organisms to do their job. So you've got more erosion happening even faster. You also can make corals weaker over time or make reefs weaker over time because of less of the cement that binds them together as they form, and it makes them easier to be eroded. So you've got this major process going on where the acidification is making reefs weaker, making them grow more slowly, making them break down or dissolve more quickly. At the same time, there's a secondary one, and that's the connection between the ocean acidification and the bleaching that something is going on there that the additional CO2 in, carbon dioxide in the water actually is causing a, an increased susceptibility of corals to bleaching. So the coral will bleach at a lower temperature than it does if the CO2 weren't there. So if you run experiments, and these have been done some beautiful experiments in what are called mesocosms, basically big aquaria. And if you increase temperature, you see an increase in the amount of bleaching and mortality of corals. If you increase CO2, you see slower growth and more destruction. If you do both of them at levels that we're likely, well, the, at levels we're, as we're almost definitely going to see around 2050, and that we're likely to see by 2100, then what you see is a reef that very quickly deteriorates into something that is not a functional reef, and has very few living corals uh, remaining.
And, and Mark spoke eloquently about the effect of the El Nino, not just on corals when he was in Thailand, but I'm sure that he could also speak to the other animals that are also dependent on being able to excrete calcium carbonate shells. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not just the corals that are being affected by ocean acidification. There's other critters that are dependent on that same ability. It's affecting fish on coral reefs. Hmm. The first story on fish it was easy to believe. It caused them to not be able to smell where coral reefs were. Well, this isn't a surprise. You're affecting the water chemistry. It's going to affect that. They also couldn't hear the coral reefs. One of the unusual things that people just weren't expecting was that larval clownfish, those anemone fish, couldn't find coral reefs in experimental test tanks because they couldn't hear what was going on any longer. So something is happening in the structure of those larvae that they're not developing properly. So not only can they not smell reefs, they can't hear reefs. Interesting. So just it's just another situation like coral bleaching where, you know, for coral bleaching, it's not just the coral, it's everything around it too that's being impacted. And then it's the same, the same that we're seeing here. So, you know, my next question was to look a little bit more at that direct impact of ocean acidification on coral reefs. But what I'm hearing from you today is there's a lot of impacts of ocean acidification on corals. There's some of these bigger things like it's causing this erosion, it create, can create weaker corals, they grow more slowly. But then also that this additional carbon dioxide can cause corals to bleach at even lower temperatures than what we've maybe seen in, in other environments. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Okay. You've got all of those plus some additional things like the larvae not being able to find the reef and things exactly. like that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a major problem. So given that there are a lot of problems out there and a, and a, lot, of, you know, a lot of threats and, and a, a lot of negative impacts to our coral reefs, I'm going to ask you both this question because I hope that there's something a little bit more positive we can leave folks with here. What is being done to address some of these problems? So in the Coral Reef Conservation Program, we've chosen a policy probably about seven years ago where we narrowed our actions in terms of what we were going to do to put resources on the ground and in the water. And so we narrowed down our, our actions to address the three main threats to coral reefs. So that would be, again, fishing, land-based sources of pollution, and climate change. And to the extent that we can alleviate or mitigate for local stressors, um, we're hoping that that will create a buffer, some sort of resilience that corals can withstand the insults that climate change are uh, dealing them I have to give a talk to um, some second graders in a couple weeks and trying to figure out how to take all these concepts and make it something that they can totally get. <laughs> and so the, the best analogy I came up with a couple years ago was corals in their, their natural state, totally unimpacted by anything. We can kind of look at them like weeble wobbles. You can poke them and they come right back up. Like Mark said, the, the ones off of Australia can withstand a bleaching event because everything else is okay, there's, there's nothing else stressing. So you can poke them and they pop right back up, but they get to a certain point where they're no longer weebles, but they're Humpty Dumpty, where you get pushed him over and then he's in pieces all over the seafloor. So it, it's more trying to get him back to the weeble wobble stage and not at the Humpty Dumpty stage. And this is really important because dealing with these local stresses is huge and it is essential because dealing with climate change, even if we were doing everything today that we could do, which we're not, um, 
it's going to take a long time to get that problem back under control. So dealing with these local stressors makes the reefs more resilient and helps them survive while we deal with climate change. Now, the good news is there are actions that are being taken now on local levels, on national levels, on global levels to address the, the carbon pollution going into the atmosphere. These are things that are being addressed now, and those are what we need to do to turn around this problem, because as long as we're continuing to increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're going to see more warming, we're going to see more bleaching, we're going to see more acidification, and it's going to take a long time to get that back under control. I, I know that people who are listening to us here today, and, and some of them may be avid divers or snorkelers and, and have been in these areas, and they've heard everything that you've been saying, they want to feel that there's something they can do to help. Is there anything that our listeners can do to help? I think as trite as it sounds, that old bumper sticker about think globally, act locally, is the way that anybody can go about being a good steward of their environment. So, so if you are a person that lives along the Mississippi River, you can think about, well, what kind of fertilizer should I be putting on my lawn? Well, maybe I don't need to put it on because ultimately it makes its way into the Mississippi River out into the Gulf. So that kind of, what can I do to reduce my impact on the land at home, right down to how can I reduce my fossil fuel consumption, my, my carbon footprint, thinking about ways to, to conserve in my day-to-day -day way of doing things. And then if you actually are lucky enough to live along a coastline that has coral reefs or lucky enough to go visit, to be a good steward there too. So don't walk on the reef, don't kick the reef, don't drag your diving gear, don't throw your anchor over, all of those things to not physically have a, a negative interaction with the reef. The, the dealing with global uh, levels of carbon dioxide, it, it's the old starfish problem. You know, you know the story, the person's walking down the, down the beach and there are all these starfish that have been washed up on the beach and tosses one in, tosses another one in, someone looks and says, you're not making a, a dent in all these starfish. He says, yeah, but it helped this one. Yep. So everybody is making a difference. And in changing your light bulbs out, making sure you're going to compact fluorescent or these great new LED bulbs that are out, choosing cars that are more fuel efficient or even electric, changing your power source, doing these things to help us switch from a fossil fuel, high carbon, energy economy over to something that is much more based on renewables is going to be driven as much by individuals as it is by governments. Well, thank you both for coming here today. I wanted to see if you had any final closing words that you wanted to leave folks with. Well, my big one is don't get depressed over this. This is not lost. If I didn't have hopes for coral reefs, I'd go do something else like, I don't know, maybe work on icebergs in the Arctic. But really, the, the, the coral reefs have a potential, but it's really in our court. We've got to do what we can as individuals and as individuals within, uh, within populations to make changes to help to keep these resources alive. I just echo what Mark has to say, and, and we are working with other federal agencies as well as other countries' governments. On, on these things, and, and both Mark and I were lucky enough to go hear a, a lecture at the Australian Embassy, and there was a thought that we need to really 
think about the ocean as one ocean for the entire planet and all think about things that we can do together. It's not just the Chesapeake Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, that we need to kind of rethink how we think mm -hmm. about the oceans. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer and Mark, for joining us today on Diving Deeper and exploring these topics of ocean acidification and coral bleaching for our listeners. You can find more information on this topic in our show notes on oceanservice.noaa.gov slash podcast.html. And thanks to everybody for coming back as Diving Deeper was on a break. Remember, you can follow the Ocean Service at USOceanGov on Facebook, Flickr, and YouTube, and NOAA Ocean on Twitter and Pinterest to get more ocean facts, news, images, and so much more. Be sure to tune back for our next episode. Thanks.